uh, of the belief, it is the inevitable progress of the human race, especially as it's expressed today, uh, transhumanist scientific progress. That's basic to every type of revolutionary mentality. It is a worship of science that always, always leads to barbarism. And so the barbarian destroys in order to advance because the destruction supposedly speeds up progress. And the more revolutionary humanisms become, the more it is suicidal. And we witnessed this in the past couple of years with all of the riots and burnings and killings and shootings and mass uh, true insurrections. I mean, that was the motivating philosophy in the whole Antifa movement, is that you've got to destroy in order for something greater and better, you know, to build back better, to use brain-dead Joe's uh, comment. That's, that's their goal. And then, fifthly, the institutions of this humanistic version of salvation are the church, the temple, or state and school, depending on the situation. And the state and the school have been morally bankrupt in particular for a long time. And that bankruptcy has been really a slow-moving rot. Uh, but it's in full view now. I mean, I think most of us in this room, I mean, you went to Christian school, but uh, if you went to an elementary school or even a junior high school back in the 1960s or earlier, it was not uncommon to have Bible reading and prayer in the school at that time. It had a veneer of a Christian culture to it, but everything was in place for it to move far, far beyond that to where we are today. Um, the mathematical dream of equality, and especially it is absurd when applied to education, which is the process of differentiation, analysis, and understanding, it's not to be a massive leveling of ideas and facts. Nothing is more ridiculous than the idea that we can somehow redeem or save public schools. Uh, government schools cannot be redeemed by definition. They're, they're far beyond that. Because from their beginnings, the public school movement has been socialistic and humanistic. They were designed to serve the government as an arm of the state and for state purposes. Its very foundation is the belief that it's the state's right to control and educate children. Now, that was not so explicitly said, but we have seen that now. I forgot where it was. It was in the past with all the agitation that some parents were doing about what was going on in the schools and some of these school systems with the transgender uh, uh, drag queen stuff and you know uh, the forced vaccinations and all the rest of that. And there was some public school official, board of education official said, you know, people need to understand we have a right to teach your children. It's our responsibility to educate your children, not the parents. I mean, you can find that. I mean, it was just said right out. Now, that wouldn't have been said 30 or 40, 50 years ago. But the, 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 uh, the platform was there. They may have not, you know, said it in so many words. Although now I'm remembering, I even call this to your attention. You know, one of the things I like to do is watch the black and white reruns of the Andy Griffith show. It's about the only thing I can tolerate on TV, TV nowadays. And it's amazing when you watch those, both the moral lessons that are, were inculcated and people actually going to church, you know. But there was one where uh, I think it was the first episode with Helen Crump, you know, Opie's school teacher. And um, Andy had gotten himself in trouble with her because Opie was complaining about the level of homework he had. 
And uh, Andy's like, yeah, that's a lot for a kid and this kind of thing. And so it kind of blows up in his face when the kids basically tell the teacher, well, my father said I didn't have to do this kind of stuff. So she marches over to his office in a rage and basically tells him in so many words, I'm the teacher. It's my responsibility to teach your children. And so even back then, there, there was that mentality. Um, but the problem we find ourselves in today, the challenge, is that humanism is dying. It looks like it's triumphing everywhere. But you see, the lesson they never learn, and the lesson that we are brainwashed into forgetting, is that whenever it does, quote, triumph, it always leads to its destruction. Now, unfortunately, we are on the same ship at this point, to some extent. Um, and so, if you, I've never had the, uh, the distinct pleasure of living next to a corpse, but I don't imagine it's a very pleasant thing. But that's what we're having to do. You know, we're living in the presence of the dying corpse of humanism. Um, so the answer, I think, to our predicament uh, is not necessarily in chronicling all the different aspects in which this is happening in terms of humanist worldview, but our goal should be reconstruction, Christian reconstruction. Humanism is dead, but the triune God lives, and that is uh, what our purpose is to be. Um, those who are content to protect the past will die with it. This, too, has been a major problem, especially for people who call themselves conservative Christians. Our goal is not to get back to 1952, whatever benefits there may have been in 1952. Our goal should be to move forward far beyond any place we've ever been, except maybe in the earliest days of this nation, to where we get back to an understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Um, a man by the name of J. Allen Smith, who was a progressive lawyer and a political theorist, he died in 1924. He wrote as follows in an article or a book he wrote called The Growth and Decadence of Constitutional Government. Now, remember, this, this guy was, would be considered a progressive in his time and in his age. And concerning this topic of the growth and decadence of constitutional government, he said this, and I'll, I'll end this part of it with this quote. He said, the basic conception of the old political order was not the divine right of kings, but the sovereignty of God. The assumed divine right of the temporal ruler was not an essential part of this doctrine. Divine sovereignty, as envisaged in the Christian theory of the world, was simply a conception of God as the ultimate source of authority. Direct human intermediaries, such as a pope or a king, were purely subsets of that belief. All human authority was conceived to be limited authority. And the ultimate sovereignty of God precluded the idea that any human authority could be unlimited. And you can see where we get into trouble if we move beyond that understanding, and that's, in fact, uh, what has happened. So, um, in going through this, it occurred to me that Romans chapter 12, verse 9 in something of an indirect way, speaks to the issue at hand here. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 12, this is just kind of a uh, slight rabbit trail, but I think the application is important for what uh, we just laid out there. Romans chapter 12. Um, <clears throat> let me share with you before we look at the verse what uh, Professor John Murray wrote in his great commentary on the book of Romans concerning the verses leading up to verse 9. He says this, 
He says the whole chapter 12 is concerned with the concrete and practical aspects of sanctification, and so the exhortations must cover the diverse situations of life. But verses 3 through 8 have in view duties which are not common to all. Verses 9 through 21 deal with duties which no one can afford to neglect. So said Professor Murray. So uh, I'm not going to focus on the the other verses, but I I want to focus particularly on uh, 12.9. Mike, would you read 12.9? You have the New American Standard, right? Yeah. Okay. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Okay. Um, You got the Geneva? No, I've got a few Okay, so I've got the same. I've got the New King James. So it reads exactly the same in the New King James. So um, the words of Paul in that verse are aimed at both the Christians in Rome and to all Christians generally. Um, And he uses the well-known Greek word agape here that is translated love. Um, Many of us already know that that is a specific term that refers to what kind of love? Anybody among the vast throngs here tonight know? Verse 10 says brotherly love. Right. So the type of fellowship, type of love that we have for one another as Christians in fellowship with one another. Um, The kind of care and concern that we feel for each other in the bonds of Christian fellowship. Uh, Dr. J.I. Packer wrote concerning that word, he said, The Greek word agape seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. It is almost non-existent prior to the New Testament. It draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It is a matter of will rather than feeling, for Christians must love even those they dislike. See Matthew 5. It is the basic element in Christ-likeness. So I think it's significant that Paul's immediate uh, directive would be that this love should be genuine, uh, not phony, not hypocritical. And he means that we are to demonstrate love that is real, that is sincere, that is truly authentic. And when he he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he devoted, uh, or the letter to the Corinthians, we know he devoted an entire chapter to the subject of love in in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. So God expects from us authentic love that is not mixed with hypocrisy or false sentiment. And I think... If we would be honest, uh, we have to say that there's a lack of that kind of love, and it's a problem in many churches. Um, Too many of us are like how uh, Robert Redford, the actor, described himself. He was walking one day through a hotel lobby, and a woman saw him and followed him to the elevator. And she says, are you the real Robert Redford? And he said, only when I'm alone. So that, unfortunately, characterizes some way that some people practice authentic Christian love. But unlike our shallow evangelical church leaders today, Paul makes immediate application so there'll be no confusion or mistaking what he means. He makes two statements. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Um, In the Christian Standard Bible, detest evil, cling to what is good. So we are to hate one thing and to love something else. And the hatred about which Paul writes is a hatred of the highest dimension. 
This is the element that's missing, I think, in a lot of uh, Christian thinking, especially of the pietistic, reformed, evangelical type, um, that, uh, you know, the, the idea that we are to have uh, an extreme detestation for what God calls evil. Uh, I'm just going to look up that hymn. Uh, it's based on one of the Psalms where the refrain is, uh, I count God's enemies as mine. Uh, the hatred about this, the word he uses here is, is an extremely uh, harsh word. He uses one of the strongest words for hatred found anywhere in all of Holy Scripture when he says, abhor what is evil. It implies not mild displeasure or mere dislike. He commands in the name of the Lord that we loathe evil. And I wonder how many of us see evil as an unveiled, bare-faced assault on the character of God and his sovereignty. Yet that's how evil should affect us. Um, and as we at least try to grow in grace, we seek to gain the mind of Christ, which is to think like Jesus thinks, and to love what Jesus loves, and to hate what Jesus hates. I mean, uh, that sounds strange to a lot of people, you know, because certainly Jesus was like the hate ashbury hippie with petunias and daisies in his hair and listening to, you know, uh, Iron Butterfly and then Agata de Vida, right? No, that's not the Jesus of history and the Jesus of Scripture. Um, in Psalm 1, excuse me, Psalm 11, verse 5, we read, Yahweh watches over those who do what is right, but he hates sinful people and those who love to hurt others. Turn to Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6, and locate verse 16. Uh, because I'm recording this, I'm going to read those verses, but follow along in your translation. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. We read, These six things the Lord, what? The Lord doesn't like very much. No, that's not what it says. The Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Now, I haven't done a deep dive into this, but it just seemed to me in passing as I was looking through this material that in some places at least, the things that are listed of what God hates is a far greater list than of the things that he really loves. And I think that's very significant. Hatred is one of the strongest emotions that can reside in a human heart. Hatred is destructive and demeaning, but not when, it's, when it is properly directed against evil. You know, when we think of things that are evil today, we automatically think of, like what was already mentioned, abortion. You know, that's a good example. Um, or, you know, at least some people would think of that. Some might include other things uh, at the top of that list, but likely that is because most people are not shown the horrific nature of the slaughter that takes place in human abortion. Uh, although I don't know if it's less horrific, but, you know, one thing that's come out with this whole Roe v. Wade thing is that, I mean, it's a significant number of abortions that are now medical. You know, the, a, a prescription is prescribed and, you know, the woman goes home and takes the pills and there you go. Uh, but the Lord our God hates abortion and all other evils that violate his law word. Um, some years ago, long before the Roe v. Wade decision was legalized, there was a German theologian who published a massive work on Christian ethics. And um, it appeared, like I said, long before 
countries of what used to be the Christian world uh, had pr- began to permit abortion on demand. Matter of fact, in most places, it was against the law. But in that book on Christian ethics, he wrote that abortion had always been considered a monolithic evil in Christian thought among both liberals and conservatives. And that's clear from the very first century in the early Christian writing called the Didache, which even in that writing, which is probably like the, between the first and second centuries uh, of the Christian era, it was called murder. Abortion was called murder in that writing. Uh, it is an unspeakable evil that God abhors, one that the American church often tolerates and winks at. Uh, and we have certainly seen the cascading effect of that toleration to where we have come today. Yes, uh, Roe v. Wade has been overturned, but of course, um, that doesn't begin to overturn the evil of the human heart. And so the constant refrain in all of Scripture is that God's people are to hate, detest, and abhor what is evil. Um, Turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And let's locate verses 17 through 22. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 17. The psalmist writes, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but Yahweh upholds the righteous. Yahweh the Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of Yahweh, like the splendor of the meadows, will vanish into smoke, and they will vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Um, However, the other side to that, though, um, and I want to end on this hopefully positive note, is that just as we are to detest evil, we are to what? Cling to what is good. And in Paul's guidance to Titus regarding the qualities of a pastor or an elder or a bishop, um, if you turn to Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, and locate verse 7. When it talks about clinging to that which is good, I mean, at least in Romans 12, he doesn't go into a a huge uh, amount of detail. I mean, in verse 12, he talks about rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. But the backdrop of him saying clinging to what is good is that which is good as defined by God's law. But um, Paul expands on this idea somewhat in this note to Timothy, excuse me, Titus, Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, uh, at least in the New King James, it says, For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So uh, that's an example of clinging to what is good. And back in Romans 12, he uses a word that's just as emphatic as the term translated abhor or hate. And this word cling, if you kind of do a study on that and look at how it, uh, its background and its meaning, it actually came from a Greek term that had its root in the idea of glue whatever the the ancient Greeks used to glue or stick things together. So that's why some of the translations have it cling, cleave, stick to, or hold on to. We are to hang on tightly to that which is good. And in keeping with the symbolism 
we are to allow the good to be cemented to our souls. And in that way, we will not so easily lose it with the next wind of cultural fantasy that comes our way. So I just wanted to share that with you in terms of this chapter 12, verse 9 on the back of the other study.